Okay, once again for this evening I have a request. Uh, there was a, a man who emailed from the UK. He's just joined the Royal Navy and was wondering whether that qualifies as being right livelihood. Now for those of you who know Buddhism, uh, traditional Buddhism, they say the path to happiness, the path to peace, the path to liberation is called the Eightfold Path. And that Eightfold Path is like right view, right thought, right speech, action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right effort, I missed out, and the right, I call it right stillness now for the last factor, meditation. And one of those was right livelihood. And the fellow is very keen to make sure that uh, his livelihood is something which is good karma rather than bad karma. So he asked me, is joining the British Navy good livelihood or bad livelihood? But he also said he was joining as a chef, as a cook. So my answer is depends on whether you're a good chef or not. Because <laughs> being a bad cook is certainly <laughs> bad livelihood. <laughs> you're doing lots of bad karma for other people. But it's a question which many people ask when they read about Buddhism because they want to make sure that the way that they raise their livelihood, they look after their family, they get their sustenance in life is something which does not create bad karma so that their livelihood, their career has meaning and a positive meaning for them. So this evening I was going to be talking about the factor of right livelihood but as I said last week when you call it right livelihood or wrong livelihood that gives it this uh, moralistic judgmental meaning of good and bad, which is not very accurate to the meaning of Buddhism. And so, instead of calling it right livelihood or wrong li livelihood, we change the words slightly but giving it a much more accurate meaning, calling it skillful livelihood and unskillful livelihood. So not right, not wrong, skillful and unskillful. Which means that uh, we understand that our livelihood has a purpose, has a goal to it, and we're asking whether that particular job or career is fulfilling the goal of life. And that means, is it skillful? Is it going to create the ends we want? Or is it going to be unskillful and just make more trouble and problems for us? Because we all know that our livelihood, our job is not just to get a big balance, bank balance and pay the bills and look after our family. But there's much more to life than the cheque at the end of the month. Actually you don't get cheques these days, it all gets transferred into your bank accounts over the internet. It shows you how much I don't know these days about modern life. As for me, the cheque is still in the mail. I haven't been paid ever since I came to the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, it is right livelihood, but I'll mention that later on about the skillful livelihood of a monk or a nun. But for you that, you many people understand the idea of like karma and basically the law of karma is that what you do, what you say, even what you think has an effect upon your happiness and the well-being of others as well. And understanding just the effects of our actions by body, speech and mind will obviously mean that we should look upon our livelihood because we spend most of our days either in the office or in the workplace or wherever else you have your livelihood 
And so there's much karma made, you know, in the office or in your workplace, both good and both bad. And so we want to try and find out how we can maximize the good karma and minimize the bad karma. And that's what the Buddha was meaning about one's livelihood. And he was mentioning that certain livelihoods, in just by their very nature, you know, quite unskillful. And you know, we know such livelihoods such as being a burglar or being a thief. And that's not very skillful about being a burglar. And we've had a few burglars come into even this place. And never once have they been skillful enough to steal a few CDs of my talks or a few <laughs> books. At least if they did that, they'd have some, some <laughs> skillful burglary. Although I did know that there was one lady who came to complain to me because a burglar had been into her house and stole uh, bottles of whiskey. And I said, you should be very grateful that the burglar has come and stole your bottles of whiskey, which is a Buddhist you shouldn't have anyway, because that burglar has actually stopped you making very bad karma. <laughs> so I say thank you to such a burglar. <laughs> but, obviously, uh, being a thief is obvious, unskillful, because in the end, that you know, whatever we steal from other people, if we don't actually get caught, every time we hear an ambulance we get afraid it might be a police car. And every time we hear a knock on the door we don't know whether it's someone who's come to arrest us. We live in fear of being caught and also we live with remorse about the fact that we've gone into other people's homes and stolen what's theirs or what they care for. And having worked in prisons in Western Australia and also other countries as well, and having met burglars, thieves and other people who have done crimes, I've never yet met one criminal or rather one person in jail, because I don't call them criminals, I call them people who have done crimes. There's a big difference there as you've heard before between being a criminal means that's all there is to them, they're a criminal and that's it. A person who's done a crime means there's much more to them than that crime. They're a person first who made a mistake. But those people who have robbed houses, who have done crimes, there's never once I've found someone in jail who does not feel remorse, who doesn't feel guilty, who feels a sense of pain because they do recognize the pain they've caused for others. They may not, may not admit it, but they feel it. When you get close to these people, because you go into those jails, you're kind to them, you teach them, you guide them in meditation, you change their lives around and they, out of respect, they open out to you and they tell you what it really feels like. They reveal things they don't reveal to others. And I've always found that people who've done anything wrong, always, they feel this remorse, this guilt, this conscience inside. Surely you can try and mask that by making yourself busy or by taking drugs or alcohol to try and dull out your conscience, but it always comes back to you eventually. So it's an unskillful lifestyle. Anything which harms and hurts another person is unskillful. And so the Buddha actually gave a whole list of like, uh, occupations, he said, which is basically unskillful livelihood. But when you give a list, it must always be approximations and have to have some sort of riders to it because one of those occupations was like being like a prison officer. 
And I've known many prison officers who are really nice guys, nice women, who are actually really trying to do the right thing. The me- meaning why the Buddha said that I was a wrong livelihood, because in India, many, many centuries ago, the prison guards would actually be torturing and killing and executing sort of the prisoners. And obviously that is a wrong, unskillful livelihood. Now having to sort of torture or kill or oppress, beat up or whatever, or execute someone. Imagine what that will do to you. Remember one of the, the monks in Malaysia who said he once met the executioner, the man who was employed in Malaysia to actually to pull the lever, to hang, hang people. And I remember him saying in great detail that when this fellow came into the room, everybody, including him, felt scared. <laughs> There was an aura about the execution of Malaysia which no one could miss, this negative energy. And he just wanted, even though he was a monk, wanted to get out of the room straight away. And this is actually what would happen. Even though you know, you're not actually doing the killing, well you are doing the killing but it's not sort of your own motivator, you're just doing your job because the government legal system says that it has to be done. But nevertheless, the feeling behind it, the effect that has on a human being, is terrible. And if any of you know people who have fought in battles or in wars, even though it might be for what they thought was a just cause, it creates a terrible trauma on that human being. And because you know, I grew up in an age where the war at that time was the Vietnam War, and some of the people who I grew up with as monks were veterans of that war. And actually you can see just by you know, their experiences in Vietnam just how that could torture them again and again. And one of the stories which I always remember because uh, was the story of the My Lai Massacre. A few years ago there was a 25th anniversary of this terrible uh, war crime done in the Vietnam War and some enterprising TV crew wanted to trace as many of the people who had gone into this village in Vietnam with the orders of killing every man, woman and child without exception, to shoot on sight. It was a war crime. And they were interviewing these soldiers and all of these soldiers except for one exception, there's always one exception which proves you know, like the placebo or the, the thing you can actually uh, compare the results with. All of these soldiers without exception had terrible social uh, inabilities, uh, psychological problems, never being able to have a relationship, never being able to hold down a job. They were actually mentally wounded by what they had done. Because you can't forget you know, shooting women and children, or men even, which you later find out have done no, no crime, they weren't communists, they were just little villagers, simple villagers, who were just going about their ordinary lives. You can see the, the result of that, which is why it's unskillful karma to have a job where you have to shoot people. But the exception was this one Afro-American, I've told this story about a year ago, this Afro-American actually refused to follow orders. He said, no, I'm not going to go in there and shoot anybody. Even though he knew that the 
penalty for refusing orders in what was a war was to spend two or three years in military jail, which was much tougher than any civilian jail. So, you know, he was really asking for a lot of pain and tribulation for two or three years, but he'd rather have that than actually shoot what he thought was innocent people. And when the TV interviewed him and asked him, why did you do that when you knew you were going to be punished for two or three years? He said, I just knew to kill these women and children was wrong. I just could not do it. He followed his conscience. And sure, he had to suffer in the military jail for two or three years, but apparently out of all of those soldiers who went into this village and shot every man, woman and child, he was the only one who was at peace with himself, who had a relationship, who was enjoying his life. He'd done the right thing. He stood up for what was right. And he was receiving the karmic consequences of feeling good about himself, of feeling at peace with his life and having the opportunity to have a relationship and share his love with other people. As a telling story, I told that story and brought it up here because Actually, even like being a soldier by itself, you know, is not, as it were, unskillful. It's actually what you do as a soldier makes it unskillful. And there was a guy who obviously may have actually shot other people, but at that time he said no, and he made some good karma at that time, even though it cost him dearly. And there was other soldiers who actually do take an interest in the communities and who do find a place in the army or in the navy or in the air force where they're not just shooting people, but they're actually doing something which can help and, and serve people. So just being a soldier by itself is not wrong livelihood. It's actually what you do with that. And I know because I once, once, once read a review of a very fascinating military journal written by some sort of general, I think, in, again, in the British Army, who had served for many years, who was an expert, and he said one of the most difficult things of training soldiers is actually to make sure that when they're in a battle they actually pull the trigger and shoot the enemy. Because it said it's well known in an army that when the crunch comes and the enemy are moving on to you and shooting real bullets, many people just can't do it. They can't pull that trigger and shoot another human being. They'd rather take the bullet themselves and die. He said one of the problems in military uh, strategy is to use whatever psychological conditioning they can muster to ensure that their troops actually fire those bullets. Which is probably why that these days in modern armies the people who actually shoot the bullets actually don't really shoot the bullets, they just press the buttons and they don't see real people on the other end. It's much easier for you to kill if you don't see what you're killing. If it's just uh, a figure on a computer screen or whatever. But nevertheless, people still feel the karmic consequences of what they did. I know there's one fellow here this evening who told me an interesting story. Some years ago, uh, he was working for the Samaritans on their lines in the evening, which were taking calls for people who were so depressed that they were considering suicide. And the Samaritan phone number is there for people who are contemplating suicide as a last resort. And you remember him telling me that one evening this fellow called him who was so depressed that uh, he was suffering so much he could not stand himself, he wanted to kill himself. And the reason was that he had just been watching the television of the first Gulf War and saw cluster bombs destroying 
the lives of so many people. And he was the inventor of the cluster bomb, living in Perth. You can imagine what that might feel like. You can't really imagine it, but you may have a taste or some idea of what it must be like to be like an inventor of a bomb or a gun or something and then look on the television news one evening and see the pain and suffering and the death which that caused. That's really pain, that's suffering, that's the result of bad karma. And so you can see that if you are in the arms trade, that is very, very bad karma, but there are always exceptions. Because I am in the arms trade. I live on arms. <laughs> Every day people bring me arms, but that's a different type of, type of arms. That's arms food with A-L-M-S, not A-R-M-S. But the point is, the Buddha said, like, being in the arms trade is also unskillful livelihood. Sure, it fulfills the goal of getting a salary so you can look after your family and enjoy your life, but in the end, whatever enjoyment you get from the money you receive or from the joy of inventing something, it's all taken away by the effect of what you've done. So, it generally... Buddhist ethics always comes down to this principle which the Buddha gave to his son Rahula. Um, don't invent these things, this comes from the Buddhist text, it's basic ethics. If whatever you do or say harms another person or harms yourself, it's called bad karma. Whatever helps another person, supports them, increases their happiness or increases your own well-being, that is called good karma. So it becomes quite easy for you to work out what is good karma and what is bad karma. And from that you can understand what is right livelihood, what is wrong livelihood. You know, and sometimes you know, doctors come along and say, is this right livelihood or wrong livelihood? Because sometimes as a doctor, or even, let's get it even closer, as a vet, sometimes you get somebody's cat or dog and you have to put them down. That story happened not so long ago when this uh, man took his Labrador to the vet and it, the, he only had an ear infection apparently but the doctor or the vet picked up the Labrador looked above or below his backside and, and said afterwards I'm very sorry we have to put the dog down and the owner was just stunned what do you mean put the dog down it's only got an ear infection why do you have to put the dog down and the vet said, because he's heavy. <laughs> That's a terrible joke, and I've said it before, but it's one. <laughs> but, what <laughs> but what's it like, you know, being a vet? Because a lot of times you're actually saving animals' lives, and you are looking after them, and you're caring for them and you're actually lessening their pain. But what happens when you have an animal who knows a dearly beloved pet, you know, who's got some injury or you know, some great sickness and they're in pain? Should you put it down or should you keep it going in agony? What should you do? And for vets who are in that situation, I said, it's, being a vet is not really the problem. It's not skillful livelihood or unskillful livelihood. It's how you do that job is most important. 
And the standard piece of advice which I give in such situations, again, is deep, profound advice. It's not sort of simple, like this is right or this is wrong. It's skillful or unskillful again. I always say that you should ask the dog or the cat what it wants. And that's actually skillful. Because if it's that, if that's your pet, or if you're a vet who is a sensitive person, you can just look in the eyes of that cat or that dog or whatever other animal you, you are treating. And you can see what it wants. Whether it's had enough, or whether it would rather just keep on living for a while. Because you can never tell with animals or even with human beings. Now there comes a time you may have visited some loved relationship in the hospitals and they're sort of they're dying and sometimes they come, I've had enough I was visiting one man, a very long-standing Buddhist of our Buddhist society he, visiting him in Armadale Hospital and he kept telling his son please just take me out the back and shoot me because he was suffering and he had enough it was only a matter of time, one or two weeks before he died and he said I can't stand it and sometimes you can understand what that might be like for you. You can understand what that might be like for a dog or a cat. So in the end, you say, my actions, is it going to harm another being? Or is it going to help them? And that becomes your standard of good karma or skillful karma or unskillful karma. It's why you're doing it much more than what you're doing is important. Intention, the Buddha said, is karma. So even if you are a uh, vet or a doctor or a nurse, and I've been told that you know, with euthanasia that there are many doctors and nurses who actually, when it comes down to a person who's suffering, who sometimes terminate a person's life, they're just reports which I've heard, and they do that out of compassion. So it's not necessarily unskillful livelihood if you really are acting out of compassion, out of wisdom, not out of fear for the happiness, what you believe is the happiness of other people. That means that in Buddhism it never becomes black and white, but it gives you these guidelines for you to make the decision. And I know that's one of the reasons why these ideas, Buddhist ideas, do become popular in the world because these are practical ideas. It's all right saying, yeah, killing is wrong or you know, euthanasia is right or abortion is wrong or abortion is right or whatever. But when you have to make that decision, what all these you know, people sitting in the big seats, the experts or the religious leaders say, that just complicates the issue for you when it comes down to these ethical decisions which you have to make then what religion or what ethics or what leaders should be doing is not making it more difficult for you but giving you wise guidance so you can make not the right or wrong decision the most skillful decision in your circumstances but that's getting away from the the right livelihood and the, the wrong livelihood, or rather the skillful livelihood and unskillful livelihood, you can see that just it's the law of karma just defines what that livelihood is. I know back to being in an army when sometimes you've got no choice. You're conscripted into the army. 
And I know that that used to be the case in Australia. It's still the case in places like Singapore where you have to do national service. So what should I do? That even happened in Thailand when a monk who was one of Ajahn Chah's disciples, he got conscripted into the Thai army. He had no choice. And so he thought, you know, he went up to my teacher Ajahn Chah and said, what should I do? You know, should I just go and hide in a forest monastery? And Ajahn Chah said, no, this is your duty. You have to disrobe as a monk, join the army for two years. Afterwards you can come back again, I'll ordain you again. But he said, what happens if I'm in a firefight and I have to shoot bullets? And Ajahn Shah, always being very, very practical, he said, easy. You know, if there's people shooting at you, you shoot back. <laughs> but make sure you shoot over their heads. <laughs> On purpose. <laughs> because the, the army captain watching you, they won't know, you know what you're shooting at. Because they'd be probably too scared themselves. They'd be probably hiding, ducking under some sandbag or whatever. But make sure that when you're in training, you become an accurate shot, so you can always make sure that you miss. <laughs> he said it's much better that you give your life than you take the life of somebody else. And that was his advice to the monk. And actually, the monk, I know him very well. He sort of went in the army for two years. And he always shot to miss, so he never killed anybody. He managed to survive the bullets himself. And then after two years he became a monk. He's one of Ajahn Chah's leading teachers now. But it was actually a way of understanding just sometimes you're in a box and you, can't, you haven't got the freedom of choice. And perhaps the most telling story about right livelihood or skillful livelihood and unskillful livelihood, which actually surprised many people, but it actually, the surprising stories is where you really learn the heart of all of this was the story of this woman in the time of the Buddha who was a very devout Buddhist. In fact, she was a stream winner, what in Sri Lanka they called a soul one. And she was married to a man whose profession was hunting, who go into the jungles and kill animals for his livelihood which was you know, always, in nearly all cases, I can't imagine the case when it wouldn't be unskillful livelihood, bad karma, killing animals. Every morning she would get up, sharpen the knives for her husband, prepare the bows and arrows and other tools of her husband, the hunter. And when other people complained, said, how can she do this? She's contributing to the death of other animals. Now, she's making bad karma. And when they came to the Buddha and asked him, he said, no, she's doing her duty as a wife. In those days, this is what she had to do. She had no choice. Therefore, it is no bad karma for her. Now, it's a fascinating piece of advice which came from the Buddha, authentic. Because, you know, I would... No, when I thought of that, first of all I said, no, the Buddha's wrong, you can't do that. She should make a stand. But there's something deeper there in that story. And the deeper part of that story is to get the idea, the paradigm, is what your intention is. And also understanding just the restrictions, the limitations of your life. Sometimes people don't have choices. And they have to make the best of the situation which they face themselves, which they they're, they're faced with, and this is the practicalities of our life. Even the farmers, they have to plough the fields, 
and destroy many animals in the process. Even myself who came here this evening to give a talk, if you look at the windscreen of our car, there are many insects were smashed on that windscreen. Should I have stayed in serpentine? And that way there were a few insects who wouldn't have died today. And you can see there that whatever you do in your life, there will always be some destruction there. But the idea of right livelihood or skillful livelihood is trying to minimize it. So you hardly destroy anything at all. You give your life meaning by trying to do something good in this life by trying to make it better. So skillful livelihood is not just making a checklist of making sure I'm not hurting or harming anybody, but also doing the positive checklist. Am I really contributing to the well-being of myself, my family and society? And those livelihoods which are really contributing something, which the end of your life when you retire, you look back on your job, and you don't really concern yourself about how much money you've made, but just what contribution you've made to the society, then that really makes it quite clear you now what the skillful livelihood is. The livelihood which will give you like material prosperity, but also the mental, spiritual prosperity as well. And that's where as uh, wise people, we should try and find livelihoods which are actually helping. But we should always remember, you know, look deeply into the livelihood and remember like, even if you work for the tax office, you know, someone has to work for the tax office and the taxes go to pay for the hospitals and for the nurses and for the roads and for all these other things which we take for granted, the schools. So instead of just thinking, oh, this is a terrible livelihood, no, it's you're doing a service for society. I remember many years ago, this fellow, his job was a bus driver, and he was just so down upon himself, what am I doing with my life, just driving a bus backwards and forwards? And I said, oh, driving a bus is neither skillful nor unskillful livelihood, it's actually what you make of that job makes it really skillful or unskillful. Well look, just be kind to your passengers. You have like hot days like today and everybody com comes in and complains. Oh, it's so hot. Oh, the buzz is late. Oh, I've had a terrible argument with my wife. Whatever else they say. Now as a bus driver, that's the first person you see when you go in the bus. The bus driver can always give a smile, can make people feel at ease. Can actually just be kind. And so that way you're turning an ordinary job into a very skillful, wonderful job. It's what you do with your job. And that also means that when we are working with other people, part of our skillful livelihood, it doesn't matter what your business is or what your job is, make sure that you can value the people you work with and be kind to them. Because it's great like you know, having a Buddhist society and being in an office and we're doing so many good things for other people. We're getting a Buddhist society together, but if people in the office are arguing with each other, then what type of Buddhist society is that? Fortunately, our Buddhist society is very harmonious. It's the first thing which I say, we're Buddhist before we're society. Always remember that. So I don't care if it's not efficient. Well, I do care if it's not efficient, but I care much more that it's harmonious before it's efficient. So if anything in this 
the temple here and is dirty or things aren't going absolutely correctly or it's a bit mucky, I'd rather have that and have people being harmonious and happy in this place than having a very uh, clean and efficient temple but where everybody is afraid of each other or watching each other's backs or angry at each other. That would then be unskillful livelihood. Because sure we get things done, but how do we get things done? And is that sort of killing human beings? Is that creating stress and sort of this terrible feeling of, of anxiety and anger and frustration you know, in our lives? There's too many people going around depressed because their life in their office is just dysfunctional. So it doesn't matter what your job is, to make it skillful livelihood by looking after each other. And there's many studies, study after study after study, which shows that when people uh, care about each other in the office, when they have empathy for each other, people work harder and the profits go up. In May, I'm going to be giving a, a big keynote speech at the 11th International Human Resources Conference in Singapore in front of all these CEOs. And the reason I'm invited there is because they understand that right attitudes are important for success in big business. The reason, well, one example, one of the stories I'm going to tell is that there was an engineering firm in the UK, I can still remember its name because I looked it up the other day, Farrelly Brothers, who did building maintenance and one of the uh, directors of the company one day decided to ban overtime. No one could come to work before 9am, everyone had to leave by 5pm. Overtime was absolutely banned. And the reason he did that, because he, he read in many newspapers, he heard from his workers that people weren't seeing their family. They were getting stressed out. In the first year, profits doubled and turnover trebled. And the turnover rate of staff went from about sort of, went to basically nil, zero. Everyone wanted to stay there and work there. It was just basic good business sense. You care for your workers, the workers care for you. And for those of you living in an office, I mean, you understand that. You know how this works. If you're being oppressed by someone, even if it may be in some great charity who's helping the world, but you're having arguments, feeling oppressed in the office for care or for Amnesty International or whatever, then it becomes unskillful livelihood for you. You know it's unskillful livelihood because it leaves you stressed out, anger, angry, frustrated. You know there's too many I've seen when I was a young student there's too many spiritual organizations. They do not value the people who work for them. They're missing the goal of why you're there for. I often remember that, you know, why am I a monk? Why have you got a Buddhist society? It's not to be rich or have lots of possessions or have a big buildings or be famous. It's for people. As I keep on saying that in my monastery in serpentine. It's the people are more important than the things. People first of all and their well-being. 
And that understands what a skillful livelihood is for even a monk. Now, if you read the Buddhist text, you say the most skillful livelihood of all is being like a monk or a nun. Is that always correct? It's how you're a monk or a nun. Because there's many rules for monks that if you don't keep those rules, then it is not a skillful livelihood at all. You can destroy the inspiration of many people. That's why that they say that if when monks start telling fortunes or start amassing money or playing in the stock market. I just heard the other day that some monks, I won't say where, were actually investing their ill-gotten gains you know, <laughs> in shares. <laughs> what are you doing that for as monks? You know, if you did have psychic powers, you'd get done for insider trading, wouldn't you? <laughs> At least you should do. <laughs> it's unfair. So, and the point is, <laughs> these people can't tell fortunes anyway. There used to be this scam going off in Thailand. The National Lottery also had an illegal lottery along with it. And the illegal lottery went like this. You just choose the last two numbers of the National Lottery. And I think they gave odds of about 60 to 1 or something. If you got it right, you get you know, 60 times your, um, your investment. And obviously, it was just by chance, it was a 101 chance of getting the right numbers. So, you know, the, the illegal lottery, people were winning all the time. Oh, sorry, the, the people running it were winning, people were always losing. But every now and again, the people come up to monks, because monks were supposed to have these powers to see the future. And people sometimes would come and beg me, said, you know, you are a monk, you're a meditator, you know, you must have psychic powers. I said, oh, I'm so poor, you should look at what's happening to my life, I really need money. I know you can do it, Ajahn Brah. I'm like, oh, you talk about compassion all the time, just be compassionate, just two numbers, please, just two, two numbers, that's all, I don't ask for much more. And of course, as a monk, you always say no. But some monks, you come up and you say, okay, number 12. Someone else, 23. Someone else, 34. If you get enough people coming to ask you, one of them is going to be right. <laughs> and when they win, they always give you, you know, a, a donation for your monastery. So that's very, un <laughs> very unscrupulous. But I don't know what it is. You know, sometimes, though, that, you know, it's, actually it works. Because I remember just in this one occasion, I was... I was in Thailand meditating on top of the mountain and all these villagers were coming up. And, and one day, and it wasn't the, the, you know, the Poya day, the moon days where we have the big celebrations. Just all day people were coming up and talking with me and I didn't know what was going on. I found out afterwards, of course, that it was a lottery day the next day. And they're all coming up and some of them were just you know, outright, you know, can you give us you know, two numbers for the lottery? And I said, no, I'm a monk, good monks don't do that. That's not skillful livelihood. And so I always said, no, no, no. But the next day, the headman of the local village came up and said, we're very pleased with you, can you stay here for a long time? And that rang bells, what do you mean you're very pleased with me? He said, oh, you give good lottery numbers. I didn't give any lottery numbers, what are you talking about? And apparently, I found out afterwards, that when somebody asked me, they, sort of, they asked these trick questions. They asked me, how long are you staying? And I said, I don't know. And no means zero. <laughs> and then afterwards I say, maybe two or three days. And two or three means five. <laughs> so they brought number 50 and that came up that day. And the whole villager really cleaned up. 
That's why they that's why they asked me, Can you please stay? <laughs> stay, stay. You can't do that. So I left the next day, I just disappeared quickly before I get into trouble. Because that is not how a monk lives. Even and this is a wonderful story from the time of the Buddha, even the Buddha was on arms round and he passed a farmer who was giving the lunch to his workers. And he went down to actually get some alms food. And the farmer said, why should I give any food to you? You've done no work. And then the Buddha actually explained just the work of a monk about keeping precepts, about meditating, about cleaning out the weeds of the mind and growing this wonderful crop of wisdom. And he said it so beautifully that the farmer was so impressed. He said, wow, I've never heard such inspiring Dhamma. Here, take some food. And the Buddha said, no. I teach Dharma for free, not for getting food. And the Buddha walked away and went hungry that day. And I always was impressed by that story because even as a monk, my livelihood is alms. You don't give Dharma teachings expecting money back in return. In fact, I would never do that. Even sometimes we've taken funeral services for people and especially for Westerners, and they say, how much do you charge? They say, look, we, we do this for free. If you want to make a donation, you can do afterwards, but it's nothing to do with the funeral service. I'll do it even if you give us nothing. So many of them give us nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Not even petrol money for our car. It doesn't matter, we'll still do that. And the point is there that you know, the livelihood of a monk is actually to give expecting nothing back in return. You do it for free. And you're very happy to do that. But if, like a monk, does it and they want something back, that's wrong livelihood, unskillful livelihood for a monk because the purpose of a monk's life, its meaning, is for the compassion of other p- people and for the abandoning of your own greed and your own ego, and your own defilements, and ill will. So when you understand what the meaning of your life is, then you can understand what skillful livelihood is. And it's not just for money, but it's not just without money. Sometimes, I know I give talks sometimes about letting go and being simple, and sometimes people complain, say, Ajahn Brahm, do you really expect everybody to live in a little cave like you do at Serpentine? Look, I've got a husband and wife and kids, we can't fit each other all in the one cave. I said, no, 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 sometimes I do sort of explain it too much in the, in the way of simplicity, but I always remember what my teacher said, if someone's leaning to the left, you always tell them to go to the right. If they're leaning to the right, you tell them to go to the left. So sometimes in an affluent society, you ask people to be more simple. If they get into too simplicity, you say, no, you're going too far, you know, look after your family, look after yourself. I know the Buddha actually said many times, there's nothing wrong with amassing wealth as long as it is rightly earned. In other words, not by exploiting other people, not by harming other people, not by harming exploiting yourself. You don't want to become rich at the expense of your health. Otherwise, you can't enjoy you know, the fruits of your labor. Or you, instead, all the work which you've done all the hard work which you've done and the money you've achieved all goes into hospital expenses to cure your stress. <laughs> and what a waste of time that is. So that it's okay to have wealth, but not at the expense of your time, your freedom, your family and whatever. Understand what life's meaning is. 
And it's not just being wealthy, it's you know, um, materially wealthy, it's being like spiritually wealthy. You know, with your relationships, time with your friends, time for yourself. That's what the meaning of a right livelihood. So I'd even say these days, if you are working from six in the morning till ten o'clock at night, that counts as unskillful livelihood. It's against the Eightfold Path, it doesn't lead to peace, it doesn't lead to enlightenment. Now this is actually taking the meaning which is said in the suttas to a different level. But it's actually valid. If you are stressing yourself out, you're not spending time with your family, you're not spending time with yourself, you can't even find time to come to the Buddhist society on a Friday evening, it must be bad livelihood. <laughs> so understand what the meaning of your life is. If you can manage to skillfully enough, have enough good karma to make money and be able to have time with your family, you're doing a wonderful job. But you know, balance your life and find out what's really important. And if you can do that, you understand that skillful livelihood is not so much what you do, you can be working in this amazing job as like the doctor of a hospital, healing and saving so many people, but your wife never sees you and your children hardly know your name, because you're never there. That's unskillful livelihood. It will not lead to good things, it will not lead to happiness, to freedom, to enlightenment. So balance your lifestyle. And when you do live that lifestyle, remember that it's not just for you, it's for others. A couple of weeks ago, a fellow came to see me here, he was some big businessman, he's made a lot of money, I think selling spring water or something. And he was saying, yeah, he's been there, done that, got the big house and lots of money. But he said that many of his friends are in the same sort of state, you know, having uh, built up companies and been very successful in life. They need more than that, they need a meaning in life. So they understand that you know making the money is not everything. You have to actually do something for society to increase you know, the happiness of other people. To be someone who's, when you die you look back on what you've done, you've done something. To increase the peace and the happiness and goodness of others. And that's why like a monk's livelihood can be excellent. A nun's livelihood can be just so inspiring because at the end of your life, sure, I haven't had any kids. No one's going to take up my name. There's not going to be a lineage of Brahms <laughs> when I die. <laughs> but, you know, you look for what you've done, you know, just how many people you've served, you've helped, how many people's lives you've changed. And that is the meaning of my life. One of the meanings anyway. And that is just so valuable, to be someone who has served and actually made a difference to people's lives. If good karma is giving happiness to others and also happiness to yourself, you understand the livelihood which is really great. So whatever job you do, see if you can increase the happiness which you generate, not just your income, but the happiness with all the people you meet in the office, or on the way to work, or on the bus, or on the, the, the train on the way to work. And in the airport when you go back to Melbourne, or wherever you go to, there's always these amazing opportunities when you're driving to stop and let somebody else go in front of you. 
when they're trying to you know, get into the lane or whatever. Create happiness, whatever you're doing in life, and it becomes skillful livelihood. And the end of your life, you know, look after charities like the Buddhist Society or the Nuns Monastery or you know, whatever other charity you look after, Amnesty International or whatever. Contribute so you feel that you're part of something which has really helped our world and served other people. You know, the times when I have been generous, I always remember them, sometimes with tears. You know, the time when I was a student, when I gave £10 to this orphanage, I think somewhere in the north of India. And that was two weeks' food money for me as a student. That was the best 10 quid, as I used to say, I'd ever spent in my whole life. I could have spent that on a sort of a new suit or going out at night with girlfriends or whatever. I'd never remember that. But when you did something which actually helped someone, wow, what a wonderful thing that was. So the best right livelihood, the most skillful livelihood, it brings happiness to yourself and happiness to others. Which you look back upon and say, wow, I'm so glad I did that. What a wonderful thing that was. I created happiness, I made a difference. And that becomes your right livelihood. Your skillful livelihood is actually a step towards Nibbana, towards ultimate happiness, towards peace and freedom. Never think you can't make a difference to this world. Never give up. I said a few weeks ago that you are the creator of your world. There's no sort of God creating this world. No fate runs this world. Every moment we have the opportunity to turn the world around by our actions, body, speech and mind. We are always creating this world. The Buddha called it craving. He called it actually chanda, this will which creates the world in this way or another. You can create your family change it into, instead of a dysfunctional family, a family of happiness, of mutual respect, of sensitivity to each other. Never think that you are confined because of some karma of the past or some bad actions of the past. Acknowledge, forgive, let go, the AFL code which I keep on saying. And that is how you can let go of the past and you can change the future for the better. That becomes your livelihood, your life. Whatever it is in your office, in your business. I keep reading again and again and again. There was another article which somebody posted to me from the East and about uh, this group of big businessmen who were going on a meditation retreat every year. These were CEOs of big companies. And one of the guys was a CEO of the Australian Opera and Lion Nathan, is that a company? Or whatever, and something else, well, I can't remember now, some big company. And he goes on a meditation retreat every year, just for a couple of days. Not just to make himself peaceful, but actually to get this compassionate attitude for the people he works with. So instead of being the boss from hell, he becomes an empathetic boss. And when he started doing this, I think it was CEO of Lion Nathan, and the first year the company profits doubled simply because his attitude was more compassionate, more empathetic and people wanted to work harder. So the skillful livelihood 
is also the most profitable livelihood as well. So you don't need sort of to cut moral corners and make sort of uh, bad ethics. You can do both. Have a spiritually fulfilling livelihood and a profitable one as well, which you can share with others. If you can do that, you understand what real skillful livelihood is. So the guy who asked me that question, who's joined the Royal Navy as a cook, just whatever you're cooking for those people, just put everything you've got into that cooking. Make it delicious. Put extra into what you're doing. The people you work with, be kind and caring to them. Make something out of the livelihood which you've chosen and then it will be skillful. You'll be adding to your happiness and the happiness of other beings. But if you know, never actually get on the end of the gun or on the end of the missile or whatever. Or if you happen to and I get into trouble, make sure you know the program so well that you program it to destruct in midair or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> so you always shoot over the heads. So it lands in the desert and doesn't kill anybody. So that is a little talk this evening on not so much right livelihood or wrong livelihood, skillful livelihood or unskillful livelihood, to making the best with what you've got. Sometimes it's difficult, but you try your very best and you can always make it better. And that should be your main job. Okay, so that's the talk this evening. Has anyone got any questions or comments about it's quite a difficult subject. Skillful livelihood. Anyone got any comments? Yes. Oh yeah, from the executioner. Negative from the executioner, yeah. Okay. okay, if you are faced with other people with lots of negativity because of their maybe unskillful actions, unskillful livelihood, the standard way is actually to have the loving kindness towards them. Actually to have a lot of like softness. So you're not critical to another person who's done those terrible things or chosen that uh, very unskillful path. You give them kindness, non-judgmental attitude. That's one of the reasons why I did very well when I was teaching in prisons because when I saw these criminals, rapists, murderers, I never judged them. You know, you just accepted them as people, not as the, the murderer. And when I, I did that, they responded just so amazingly well. And that's just common if you go up to a person and you give them kindness instead of negativity. A good, I don't know if I told, I think I told a story in Bali when I was there ten days ago. But there's one of my disciples in Sydney. Uh, she had a fashion business uh, importing, um, I think it was actually uh, frocks and selling them to Myers and Coles and stuff. And she went to UK to London. Did I tell this story? I did. Last week? Yeah, okay, no, Bali. You weren't here last week. Oh. Okay. But just, just for you, I've started. I'll just finish it very quickly. She went to London. It was a big business deal. 
When she got there, she was jet-lagged, she went in the office, the other directors of the company say, you've got no chance at all, the boss is in a bad mood, he's usually in a very aggressive mood, he's worse than ever today, no way. And so she sat in the corner just away and did some meta-meditation and a loving-kindness for this boss. And the result was actually quite unexpected. When the boss came in, in a really stinking mood, she just said automatically, wow, you've got such beautiful blue eyes, just like my baby girl. And it just came out spontaneously. She never planned it. And the, the, the boss melted. And he, sort of, you know, he smiled and signed the contract. And the other directors were just, how do you do that? How do you tell us how you do that? <laughs> it's just loving kindness can melt the hardest of people. And that was a little story about you know, how negativity can always be overcome with loving kindness. But you've got to be good at it and practice it well. And then you know, this poor guy, I don't know why he chose a job as executioner for Malaysia, but he had it. And the last he wanted was more negativity. You know, if someone could just you know, give him a hug, you know, a spiritual hug, and get him to forgive himself. And that's you try and make amends sometimes. Whatever bad karma you've done, you can't get rid of the bad karma, but you can always dilute it by making lots of good karma. That's always a wonderful thing to do. So if you have made bad karma, see what you can do to make some good karma instead. And so no, dilute it. Okay, any other questions before we finish off? For today, no, that's it. Okay, so thank you for listening to the talk on skillful and unskillful livelihood.